Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Edward Harris for a conversation about law in classical Athens. Dr. Harris is an emeritus professor in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at Durham University based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. He is co-editor of the book, The Oxford Handbook of Ancient Greek Law, which was eponymously published by Oxford University Press. And he is author of the book, The Rule of Law in Action in Democratic Athens, which was also published by Oxford University Press. And he joins us today from Athens, Greece. Welcome to the call, Edward. Welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. So uh, to start off the conversation, Edward, when we're chatting about classical Athens, for everyone listening, can you define what scholars consider that uh, period to be? And when do uh, laws start to be in Athens, start to be more formalized in some kind of rule of, of law that a scholar would say, you know, now, now there, there is clear processes that are being followed consistently? Good. Well, let's start certainly with the classical period. The classical period of Athens is uh, generally regarded as the period um, from the overthrow of the tyranny and the beginning of democracy, even though they don't call it democracy until probably about the 430s. And this goes through to uh, 322 um, with the defeat. And then there is a period um, of, uh, when, of back and forth. Uh, the democracy is then restored by 307, but by, everybody would agree that we're into the Hellenistic period by that point. Uh, so those are the basic features. That's classical Athens. It's the basically the high point uh, of the democracy. We'll get back to that. Now, the ideal of the rule of law, on the other hand, goes back further. And some people in Athens actually thought that democracy went back further. They thought this in the fourth century. And the main person they identified with, uh, they identified with for the uh, democracy, uh, as a founder of democracy, was Solon. And we have a precise date for Solon. We know Solon was the archon. This was a, a formal position uh, in 594 BCE. And it is generally agreed that he was the one who laid the foundations for the Athenian law code. Uh, these are our formal laws. We'll talk about what they were like in a minute. Uh, there was another earlier feature uh, figure called Draco, who was given uh, us the name Draconian, which is very harsh. Uh, of course, uh, in English today. And uh, we know that uh, he laid down laws about many different subjects, uh, but they were all abolished uh, by Solon and replaced with new laws. We don't know what the changes were. And the only laws of his that survived the Solonian revision were the laws about homicide. And there was one that was actually uh, republished uh, in four, uh, about 408, 409, 408. Uh, and we actually have a copy of it. Unfortunately, it's very damaged. Uh, we'll get back to that in the sources. So Solon is, in many ways, uh, I don't know if he, one can say he originated the ideal of the rule of law, but he certainly was probably the most eloquent uh, poet uh, to articulate this ideal in the archaic period. This is a full hundred years before we, uh, what we call a real democracy more or less began. And there are certain basic features uh, which are important. One is the idea of uh, equality before the law. 
This means that whether you're rich or whether you're poor, uh, you are tried by these same rules. The other one is that you have the right to a trial. And we do know that one of Solon's reforms was that anyone who was about to be punished by a magistrate had the right of having his case heard before a court of his peers. And that is that right to a trial uh, before uh, a court of your peers is, of course, also very important. He also had uh, another uh, reform, uh, which is that citizens could not be enslaved for debt. Uh, he did not abolish debt bondage, but the main thing is, I think, there is that the it was an attempt to secure the freedom of all citizens. Now, that didn't mean that they couldn't enslave other people from other Greeks or, for instance, or non-Greeks, but that was also a very important uh, as a guarantee. So some of the foundations for the rule of law are definitely laid down by Solon, and they're then developed later. Okay, and you mentioned uh, the year regarding Solon 594 BCE. Um, and then you mentioned uh, Draco, it sounds like comes la later on. He's earlier, it's about 630. We oh, he's 630, exactly. okay. Generally thought to be about maybe 40 years before. Okay, so who was, for my, so for clarification, who who was the one that did the uh, uh, re rewriting of some of the laws? Was it Draco or Solon? Well, no, Draco was the, seems to have had a, an elaborate law code uh, and then this law code was more or less completely replaced by the law code of Solon. And in fact, the Athenians often call their laws in general the laws of Solon, even if they were enacted later. Uh, it's, he's seen as the kind of uh, great uh, lawgiver, the kind of the uh, at Origo of the entire uh, system. And he, the only laws that he retained to Draco were the laws about homicide. Okay. And you mentioned that... Um... And I want to make sure I got the dates right here because some different dates. So um, Solon was sixth century. You mentioned classical Athens. Second century, seventh century, six thirty BC. Uh, Solon. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Solon is Solon is sixth century. It's early sixth century. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Solon. Uh, yeah. Sixth century. Uh, classical Athens, fifth century. Fifth century and fourth century. Yeah. Okay. So then. Okay. So let's go to the classical Athens. Um, part then so what what's 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 di different if there is a difference then when you get to classical athens so from from where solon was doing work in this area and creating things um we get now to the classical athens um period can you describe how the uh the shape of law changes well the important thing is to keep in mind the basic structure of government and this is true not only for athens but for the basic also for the city-states and once we understand that, we can understand something, I think, also about the development of law. Uh, in the uh, modern states, uh, they divide between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial area. And of course, the executive is either uh, in, say, in the United States is the president. In France, there's also a president. Uh, and the legislative, again, would be the Congress. Now, in the UK, for instance, the executive branch and the legislative branch are combined because, of course, the prime minister is the leader of the majority in parliament. Um, but at any rate, there is that basic three distinctions uh, between the executive, the legislative, and the uh, judiciary. Uh, in classical Athens and also generally in Greece, the division is between the deliberative function. The deliberative function is the assembly 
And in Athens, the assembly is the body in which all adult male citizens, adult male citizens have the right to go and there they make major decisions. There is also the courts which are considered separate and the courts are made up of in by the fifth century. Uh, we don't know much about the earlier period, but by the fifth century, the courts uh, are made up of hundreds of Athenian, average Athenian citizens, um, often uh, they're selected from a panel. It's a very complicated system about how they select them. And then the third part are the magistrates. And the magistrates are supposed to be a rule in accordance with the laws which are set down by the assembly. So the assembly is the, all the Athenian citizens, and it's there that the laws are passed that affect all the Athenian citizens. They're not passed by representatives uh, or delegates. Now, there's been some debate recently uh, that this changed uh, around 403 BCE. From 404 to 403, there was a regime of 30 tyrants uh, who overthrew the democracy and also overthrew the rule of law, and they arbitrarily put to death thousands of Athenian citizens. They were driven out, and there were some major reforms that took place in 403. Now, some scholars have believed on the basis of a few documents that they took, they made a distinction between laws and decrees at that point. And laws are general provisions and decrees are provisions either made for one individual uh, or for a short period of time. And they also made a distinction, this is very important actually in the history uh, of law in general. The laws were superior and all the decrees had to conform to the laws. So this is an important development. Uh, even though probably the laws of Solon were entrenched, they were hard to reform, but this kind of made a very important uh, distinction. And Moens Hansen has done some good work showing that in the, all the decrees we have and all the laws they have, this distinction seems to be upheld. The Athenians know what their terms mean. They're quite capable of making these distinctions and also following their own rules. Um, some critics of democracy felt that democracy was not capable of following its own rules, but I think a good case can be made um, that this is an exaggeration. Now, uh, some people have also believed that at this point, however, the, the laws were finally enacted by these special, this new category, nomoi, the laws, were enacted by a smaller group called the nomothetai. And the nomothetai were the members of the court, for instance, for that year, or people who'd sworn the judicial oath. We'll get back to the judicial oath in a minute. Uh, however, the problem is with this, and this gets into the question of the sources. The sources for these statements are documents which are inserted in the text of the Attic orators. The Attic orators are these uh, very famous uh, orators uh, who wrote speeches, and we have a lot of them, the most famous, of course, being Demosthenes, uh, Lysias being another one, uh, Isocrates, uh, Isaeus. And in these speeches, especially speeches of Demosthenes and, uh, and Docides, there are texts inserted into these speeches which appear to be real laws. Unfortunately, um, a work by myself and especially by my student, Mirko Canavaro, has shown that many of these documents are actually forgeries and they were composed in the Hellenistic period. And the information that's found in these documents is not reliable. And it's in these documents that implies, in a few cases, 
that the laws were passed only by this narrow group of the nomothetai. And some people have then gone even further and argued that Athenian democracy after this period was not really a full democracy, but it was kind of one that was kind of controlled by this smaller group. Uh, the, on the other hand, uh, recent research, again by myself, um, uh, Mirko Canavaro, my student, and uh, his student, Alberto Esu, uh, has shown that the assembly still in the fourth century was the authority which passed all the laws. So in that sense, there was no difference between the fifth century and the fourth century, and there was no shift from democracy in the fifth century to the rule of law in the fourth century. Democracy and the rule of law always went hand in hand in classical Athens. Okay, and were the nomo tethai? Um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best with the um, pronunciation. We'll re we'll rely on you when you say it for for accuracy. <laughs> accuracy. Um, so, how long is it believed um, that this group ex existed? Well, the Nomothetai always, I mean, existed. There's no question about that. The question is who they were. And a lot of people tell this is a separate group aside from the assembly, but there are several passages that show very clearly that the Nomothetai was simply what the assembly called themselves when they were passing normal, mm. these special laws which were different from decrees. They wanted to make a difference between the two, and therefore what they called themselves was a different name when they were passing these different types of uh, measures. Uh, which were of general, and they were harder to uh, they were harder to, to change, and they were of general uh, application. And all the decrees which the assembly then passed were supposed to conform to these laws. It's an attempt to create consistency in a system. One thing is very important in a legal system is that everybody knows what the rules are, and that when he or she goes into court, that they are going to be tried always by consistent rules. And this is an attempt to bring consistency into the system so that it will be reliable and it, everybody will have respect for it and confidence and also the decisions will be seen to be legitimate. Okay, so laws and decrees in this period of time, were they both, uh, and, and it sounds like they, uh, there was a different moniker that they may have called, them, called themselves if uh, if they were passing it, the, uh, the 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 law the laws did I get that right? That's when they're they they call themselves the nomo tete. Yeah, the the assembly calls itself nomo tete when it's passing laws as opposed to just decrees. Okay, okay. It's very rarely that th those meetings occur very rarely during the year. On the other hand, it's it's now known for the fourth century the assembly. And this is uh, you have to remember these are anybody could go to the assembly, but this is also a kind of a very small country. There are only probably about 30,000 citizens in the fourth century. And we do know that the assembly meets at least 40 times a year. So in other words, um, you know, up to uh, sometimes and obviously can meet more times. And this means that they could have been meeting any time up to about uh, once a week. Uh, on the other hand, not everybody attends uh, every for every meeting. Um, we don't know, but at least maybe five or six thousand would be attending kind of every meeting, just in the same way as in any modern country. Not everybody votes at every election. What's known about in that environment if a quorums existed, and uh, what percentage of the um, vote which is somewhat similar to a quorum what percentage of the uh of a vote was required to pass a new law or decree 
We don't know anything about a quorum being set for meetings of the assembly. We do know for certain types of decrees, like those about citizenship, that I think there was a quorum of five or 6,000 um, where they, they had to have a number. Also for ostracism, there seems to be a quorum. Ostracism is this uh, a funny uh, procedure, which I always kind of call a reverse popularity contest. Um, if somebody was suspected of wanting to become a tyrant, uh, they held an ostracism and everybody was cast their votes uh, uh, with these ostraca, which are pot shirts. There were plenty of these broken pots lying around the Agora. And uh, the person who got the most votes lost. Um, and there seems to have been a, uh, a quorum there. Uh, not, we don't think a quorum actually for getting the votes, but a quorum of people voting, which is five or 6,000. And then the person would be required to leave Athens for 10 years. Uh, he would keep his property. And then if he behaved, he would be able to come back. And many famous people uh, in Athenian politics uh, were, uh, were suffered ostracism. It's an unusual procedure. The last one we know is roughly taking place about 417, 416, 415. The law is still on the books in the fourth century, but nobody uses it after 415. And very famous people, uh, for instance, um, uh, for instance, Kimon, uh, also uh, Themistocles, um, and uh, others um, are uh, have to are ostracized and uh, and have to leave. How complicated? Um, and it probably depends on you know who who's you know so, someone's point of view. But how how complicated were uh, understanding the laws in uh, classical Athens? You, you think in modern terms, there's concepts, and I want to I want to dovetail into into the question about if lawyers. It's it's probably anachronistic, but if lawyers existed as well in this period of time. But how how complicated were these laws to understand as regular uh, citizens? When you think in contemporary terms, there's oftentimes um, someone will hire a lawyer to help interpret things and uh, potentially help defend somebody or to help act as uh, on the plaintiff side, etc. And it's not just law, but you know, there's other fields like accounting, right? Where there's you know there's these professions that help people understand and and get through the topic. So when we get to when we go back to classical Athens. Um, how complicated were these laws to understand as uh, non, non-specialists, and did the concept of a lawyer exist? Those are excellent questions, um, and there's been a, a fair amount of debate about this. I think the general view now is that, first of all, when these speakers in court address the people who are judges, they say, you know the law. And in certain cases, they say, you know the law because you were the ones who made it. Because you have to remember, the laws are being made in the assembly, and anybody can go to the assembly. Uh, the other thing is that in Athens, also, the uh, the body that did the main business is called the Council of 500. There are 500 new councillors every year. So this means over a period of about maybe 20 years or so, most Athenians would actually have been in the council. The council was the, the body which prepared legislation uh, to be given to the assembly. So if you were in the council for a year, you got a really good training. I mean, it was kind of the equivalent of going to law school. And this wasn't just for a few lawyers. This was everybody. The other thing is also is that Athenian magistrates only served for a year. They had to apply the laws. And they might go to, they might serve one year in one post and another year in another post. And they were also selected by lot. They, some were elected, but most were selected by lot. This means anybody can kind of qualify. And this means they would have also had a lot of experience applying the laws. They were expected to rule katatus nomos according to the law, so they needed to know those laws. 
So between their experience as magistrates, on the council, and in the assembly, they obviously knew the laws, and that's the impression that we have. And that meant that an, an, an average person would know how to bring a lawsuit. We can get back to that uh, later. Uh, so there was no need for specialists because, in a way, every Athenian citizen was a specialist. He had expertise. Now, there's uh, a certain people who tried to argue that the Athenians were hostile to expertise, especially legal expertise. But there's really no evidence for that, and there's a lot of good evidence against it. We do know that the Athenians certainly had a lot of respect for experts because we have decrees of the assembly in which they are rewarding people uh, who have expertise for the law in the law or in other subjects, for instance, architects or doctors. They have a great deal of respect for professionals. They just happened to edit a volume uh, with two other young scholars, uh, Edmund Stewart and David Lewis, in which we show that actually uh, professionals and non-agricultural labor had a, could achieve a great deal of uh, prestige and were often uh, selected as ambassadors or given high office. Uh, and in terms of the law, there doesn't seem to be any expertise. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any prejudice against expertise. In fact, quite the opposite, because of these speeches, you know, we're telling you about um, Andocides and Demosthenes and Aeschines, the, the orators often get these orators often get up and they they list they read out one law after another law after another law um to show their knowledge of the law and they wouldn't be doing this if there was a kind of hostility to this now there's recent one recent scholar called um Holdines Ma who's written this book that the Athenians were hostile to expertise and there what they did is they're therefore um uh, for instance for the secretaries of the magistrates they tended to make these into slaves. And the idea was that this was their way of controlling the bureaucracy. If they had the bureaucracy was made up of slaves, they could control the bureaucracy. So we wouldn't have the sort of horrible situation that we have where, for instance, bureaucrats in Brussels are running everything in the EU. I, I don't think that's true. Um, but obviously, that was the kind of hidden agenda behind this book. Um, but as a lot of people have noted, that actually the secretaries um, and the people with expertise in Athens are, are actual regular citizens, and regular citizens have a lot of expertise, and uh, they draw on this uh, expertise. And the other thing is that the slaves who assist them don't have much expertise at all. They do rather routine tasks. So that I think that um, that view that the Athenians were hostile to expertise and therefore tried to use slaves who could be experts, uh, it doesn't seem to have much support uh, in the sources. On the other hand, also, uh, laws were easy to find. And what they tend to do is, the, uh, for the most important laws, they wrote them down on these big stelae. And the stelae is a big slab of marble or uh, limestone, and they carve them in large letters. And they're obviously meant to be read. And these, are, uh, these were in the, the prominent places. Uh, and uh, we do know of a one litigant um, who was thinking of bringing a charge for murder. And he went and he talked to some experts to get advice, but then he went and he actually looked at the Steely himself, the Steely with Draco's homicide law, and he read it out and it wasn't very complicated. The other thing is that as uh, James Sickinger um, also demonstrated in an essay uh, published in 2004, uh, no litigant ever claims that it was hard to find the laws. They say it was, I found the law here, I found the law there, and it was easy to find the laws, and it was also easy for them to read. And actually, this principle is enunciated by Demosthenes in the Against Leptines. 
um, which is a fascinating speech, which I've translated, and we've got a very good commentary by uh, Mirko Cannavaro. And at one point in that speech, he says, the whole point of legislative projects is to make laws easy to understand, to make them accessible, and to make them easy to read. So this idea of making the law easy um, to find and easy to understand is actually explicitly stated and everything we can see about all the publication of laws, uh, the language in which they're written, is obviously an attempt to do that. And this is a key feature of the rule of law. Um, and I think you'll find any definition of the rule of law, the idea that the law should not be something hidden, should not be something completely in the hands of experts, um, but can basically, uh, is accessible. And everybody knows the basic principles. Uh, that principle of the rule of law was certainly uh, upheld uh, in classical Athens. Okay, let's go to the uh, courts. Um, there obviously needed to be an environment in which um, formal decisions were, were made on on matters. Um, can you speak about uh, the, the court the court process? Um, you know the the process, reaching verdicts, uh, mm -hmm. etc. And in an episode a couple months ago with uh, Dr. Zosha Archibald, we were chatting about. Um, commerce, and I'm just kind of going back in my mind here, we're chatting about commerce in the northern Aegean area. Mm -hmm. And something that I found interesting that came up in that conversation, although we weren't directly speaking about Attica and Athens, um, but uh, uh, court in Athens came up in that conversation where people would travel to, to, to Athens. So can you also speak about, uh, in this period of time, what was the catchment area for courts in in uh, classical Athens? Well, uh, uh, Dr. Archibald brings up a very important point, um, and this is where law has a very important impact, and the rule of law has a very important impact on economic growth. Now, there was a view that was held by Moses Finley and his students that basically uh, the Greek world was economically stagnant, and that there wasn't much growth, there wasn't much trade, people were just interested in self-sufficiency um, and uh, there again it was basically a kind of picture of uh, economic well kind of almost decadence uh, over the last 20 years uh, with the work of uh, excellent work of Alain Bresson who's now at Chicago I've contributed to this uh, myself and several other scholars uh, we've challenged this view and I uh, just recently published something um, in the uh, Oxford handbook which is now uh, accessible online um, talking about the importance of the rule of law uh, for increasing uh, markets. And there are several aspects to this, but I think what was relevant to what um, Dr. Archibald was talking about is that if you're going to expand markets, you've got to allow foreign merchants to be able to have access to your courts. In other words, if you have a contract between, say, an Athenian and someone from Miletus, if that person from Miletus finds that the Athenian has not fulfilled the terms of the contract, he has got to have access to the Athenian courts. Now, some people felt that this didn't occur until about uh, the middle of the fourth century. Uh, for instance, Professor Ober in his recent book. But this is actually not true. We have several sources which show that the Athenians opened access uh, to their courts to foreigners in the uh, well uh, in the fifth century, uh, and this is stated in several places, and in certain other also in other states. Other states would give prodikia, in other words, privileged access to the courts, to certain foreigners. But that implies that all foreigners have access to the courts, 
And also in a lot of states, in Athens and other states, there's a specific magistrate who's supposed to handle cases that are involving foreigners. So they're obviously making an effort to make their courts accessible because they know this is very important for carrying on trade and for the enforcement of contracts. And this is, as any person, for instance, in new institutional economics will tell you, one of the key features uh, for building uh, a thriving economy is the third party enforcement of contracts. The Athenians and other Greeks, not just the Athenians, but other Greeks certainly do that. Okay, so what was the, the process? And obviously, th there's probably a lot to this this question. But what was the process then for court? Can you describe the, 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 the you know, the structure of it? Was there a judge? Were there what was there a uh, was there a jury? Um, what was the process of verdicts being um, uh, uh, being arrived at, etc? Well, let me, I think the best way to do this, and I remember when I was giving a talk uh, about Athenian law uh, at uh, New York University Law School uh, in a session on legal history, and I was giving a paper uh, about uh, Athenian law interpretation of law, and what was interesting was getting the perspective of real lawyers who actually bring cases to court, and their big question is, well, wait a minute, how does this system work? If you're all talking about the interpretation of laws and what laws were, but how would this system actually work? And it was really useful because it made me think about it in a different way. And this is very important. If you want to get a case to court, what do you do? And nowadays, actually, in the, a lot of countries, uh, I've done this myself, um, you can actually, average citizens can actually bring a case, especially a civil suit. You can't bring a, uh, one cannot bring a, a criminal suit because that's left in the hands of the district attorney or a public prosecutor. But um, in, in the United States, you can still bring civil suits on your own. I've done it myself, actually, with varied success. Um, in Athens, the idea was that the, the person who was concerned uh, in the, in a, there were two types of suits, a private suit, that is between two private individuals, and a public suit. And the unusual thing about the Athenian legal system is that anybody could bring a suit. Now, there is some thought that this was just limited to citizens, but no, private suits could be brought by, as we talked about, by, uh, by foreigners and by resident aliens. And also, in certain cases, it seems like these public suits, I'm going to get back to that in a minute, could also be brought by foreigners. We have several examples of this. It seems to be rare. Now, for a, uh, a regular suit, they're both initiated in the same way. What happens is, is that the accuser goes and summons the defendant. He just finds him in the street um, or talks to him down at the Agora and says, I summoned you to appear before a magistrate, a certain magistrate, at a certain time. And so he's expected to go there. Now, the problem is, is could this be abuse? Could say, well, you know, claim that he summoned and he really didn't. And then he shows up and claims that he's, uh, the other person is, uh, you know, not paid any attention to this. What they had to do is they had to bring two witnesses to the summons so that there was no question, if there was any question about this, that the uh, accuser would actually have to provide these two witnesses to prove that he actually did make mm -hmm. the summons. Now, the thing is, it's interesting, in their public suits, which are like our criminal suits, they can also be brought by anybody, by any citizen, and in some cases by foreigners. So what happens is both of you, the accuser and the defendant, public and private suits, they end up going to the magistrate on a certain day, and they throw them together. And what the accuser does is he submits a written statement. Um, it seems to be that 
he may have um, probably written this himself, or he would have had the magistrate actually write it out for him, but we know it was a written document. And it's very, this I think is the most interesting document in the legal system. Sorry, I wrote an article about this about 10 years ago. And um, in fact, we had a conference about it. This document has been, uh, the importance of this document has been underestimated. It's very simple though, it's a very simple document. Uh, it's the name of the accuser. It says what procedure he's using. And then it has the name of the defendant. And then what it does is it has a list of all the illegal things which the defendant has done expressed in the terms of the statute. Now, for instance, if I'm bringing a private suit for theft, I have to state in my plaint that the defendant stole certain goods uh, and give the amount, uh, and he did it at a certain time uh, in a certain way. And that's the, that's the document. Now, the, the magistrate takes this document and he looks it over and he has to figure out, he has to check for certain things. First of all, he says, is this in my jurisdiction? In other words, is this in the right court or should this be in another court? Secondly, he has to check the names, see are they both citizens, are they both foreigners? If it's both citizens, it might go to one court. If they're both foreigners, it's going to go to, to, go to another magistrate. And then he has to figure out whether it's a public or a private suit because which kind of court it's going to go to. So that's under, that's interesting. It's a very important document, which is mentioned. It's called the plaint or the enclema. And it seems to be that this kind of enclema also exists in other cities because we have the word in other cities. Then the magistrate will set a day for the anachronosis. And this is the kind of questioning period. And this is also, we don't know much about this. This is obviously a really important beating, but we don't have very much information about it. But it seems to be at that day, the magistrate actually would check over the plaint to see that everything was in order. In other words, did you express everything in terms of the statute? We've got the names right, we've got your deem right, your residence and things like that right. And, and so he checks it out. And then what he does is after it's then agreed, and then if the defendant has any objections, it can be kind of, you know, rewritten. After it's, it's set, it's then sent off to the right court. And they get a day for that court. Now, it's very important because also at this point, if you bought a public suit and the accuser decides to change his mind and after discussion, he decides, I don't think I really should bring this suit to court. He can then withdraw it at that point. Once he then goes beyond that, though, he has to bring the case actually to court. So we understand the first three parts of the procedure. One, the summons. Two, the initial meeting before the magistrate. And three, the anachronosis or question. That's the all these suits now if the suit is not involved very much money it'll probably go to a certain um to a certain uh other kind of court where you only have maybe one judge on the other hand for uh the public cases which are like our criminal cases they are brought before a court of 500 judges not jurors judges for smaller cases depends on the amount of money and it could be 100 200 300 depending on how much money is at stake. Now, these are large courts, and then we can talk later about how the judges are selected. They're just selected on that day. They have to be, of course, Athenian citizens. They can't owe money to the state. And so at the beginning of the court day, um, and it begins probably in the morning, very early up, everybody gets up early in the morning, they assign all these people, then again, for a public case, 500, 600 people. For Socrates, when he's tried, in th and 400, 399 BCE, probably is uh, 500 judges all there. 
And what happens mm. is that the, the enclema, the plaint, is read out. And that's very important because the judges need to know what are the issues are voting for. And they can only vote yes or no. They can either vote for the accuser or they can vote for the defendant. Very simple, no compromise solutions, no a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You basically have to vote for the plaint, to accept the plaint or to reject the plaint. Then what happens is in a public suit, the accuser speaks first and his time is measured by something called the clepsidra, which is the water clock. And we've actually found one in the Athenian Agora excavations, and you can go see it in the Agora Museum. And then his speech is time. It's thought that the speakers probably had three hours. And if it turns out also, you could get so it's, uh, an assistant speaker to help you. If you didn't, you didn't think you were that good a speaker, or you needed some help, or you wanted to kind of, you know, couldn't speak for three hours, you had something called a sunegaros or a, a supporting speaker. And sometimes you might have two or three. So... We sometimes tend to think of it as one accuser. Well, it could be several, actually. And then what happens in a public suit is the defendant has then three hours to also speak. And each one can bring forth witnesses and also can bring forth written documents. And they often do. For public suits, there tend to be, uh, there tend to be a preference for written documents, for instance, and their whole range of written documents. There are a huge number of written documents in the archives. Uh, for private suits, uh, where they're not, they don't have a, um, a public, uh, they don't tend to have a, a public archive for private documents, and they don't have anything uh, like um, uh, a person who can actually place the stamp on documents. So they tend to use witnesses for private suits. So at any rate, they can provide a whole range of things. And the other thing is they also have to keep to the point. They, are, they can't just come in and say anything that comes into their head. They have to stick to the charges which are in the indictment, in the enclema. They actually have to do that because they don't want to, you know, the judges don't want them wasting their time. And it's actually, we have certain cases where litigants go in there and start talking about something else, and we hear that the judges shouted them down. They said, keep to the point, keep to the point. And the defendants will also say, my accuser didn't keep to the point. He didn't keep to the charges which are in the indictment. And it's very important because another aspect of the rule of law is the defendant always knows what the charges are against him before he goes into court. Basic feature of the rule of law. And that is the case today. So that's what has, so we have those speeches. And then um, in private speeches, a little different. The accuser speaks first for a shorter period of time. The defendant speaks uh, first, and then the accuser speaks again, and the defendant speaks again, and then they vote. Now, again, the voting is by secret ballot and uh, there are different stages, but by the fourth century, basically you get two ballots and one has got kind of a hollow axle and the other one's got a full axle. One is for the defendant and one is for the accuser. And they go by a big jar and they put their hand down it and they drop the whatever it is for the accuser, it's the one, and if it's for the defendant, it's the other. And then the spare ballot they put in another jar. The idea is that this is secret ballot, and the idea is that they can't be intimidated, and they can't, they won't have to fear any reprisals. If there's a powerful politician, he won't know how you voted. So he, if he gets convicted, he can't go and figure out who you were, and then go and try to have you roughed up again by his cronies. So then that's the case. So for a, a uh, for private case. They're usually, it's always monetary damages. 
It's always monetary damages. And if, the, if it's voted for the accuser, then the defendant has to pay. If it is, on the other hand, for a public charge like Socrates' trial, then there's a second part. And this is called the timesis. And in most cases, then what happens is the prosecutor proposes a penalty. In the case of Socrates, they propose death. And then the defendant will propose a penalty, obviously less harsh in, in uh, Socrates' uh, case. Uh, it was uh, a monetary penalty, which was not very high. And then the court votes again and by the same process. And in Socrates' case, of course, they voted, the majority voted for death, and Socrates was then uh, led away to the prison. And there is a prison in Athens, and actually most cities that we know of actually had a prison which was under the control of public officials. So that brings us from the beginning of the um, case uh, to the end of the case. Now, another aspect of the Athenian legal system, which is criticized by Plato, is that in a modern system, if there's some problem with the case, in other words, there's suspicion they didn't follow the law, procedures weren't followed, there's always a possibility of an appeal. In Athens, there's no appeal against public cases, criminal cases. What Socrates had, there was no appeal. He was stuck with it. And whereas Plato doesn't like that idea and the laws, he actually proposes a system of appeals. In the case of the private suits, a, the person who was losing could bring a suit for false testimony against one of the witnesses. And that was the only way of reversing the verdict. And we do have a certain number of speeches that were delivered in cases like that. But that's one of the systems It's a bit rigid, actually. The system is also a bit rigid. So that, does that give you the basic kind of features? Now, one final point, in which I'm sorry, mm -hmm. this is my hobby horse, but I'm going to have to write it, oh, yeah, is yeah. one shouldn't use the word juror. You're, these are judges. And the reason is, is in the, uh, for instance, the juror is a word taken from common law system, which is, again, the UK, the United States, and those places like Canada have been influenced by uh, common law is that there you have a division between judge who's a professional and he decides or she decides on questions of procedure. In other words, you're allowed to use this witness where this is how we give us instruction to the judges. And then jurors and the jurors are people who only decide about questions of fact, mainly guilt or innocence, but they do not uh, any questions about interpretation of law. That's always the terms of the judges. And there's this division, strict division of function between judges and jurors. In certain cases, you are allowed to waive the right to a jury trial and then have is what's called a bench trial. And a bench trial, the judge fulfills the rules, the, the role of judge and of juror. Now in Athens, there's no distinction between these two. These are judges, judges, judges. And the reason that they are judges is that one, they one, they hear questions both about the facts and also about interpretation of law. So they're both they're both listening to, did the defendant do it? And they're also, if there's questions, doesn't always happen. In a minority of the speeches which we have, there seems to be some question about the, uh, the, the meaning of the law. It's the, it's the judges in court in Athens who decide that question. The other thing is they also, in a lot of cases, in criminal cases, it may be the judge who actually determines the, um, uh, the penalty, except in death penalty cases where the jury actually does that. We've seen this recently. Uh, whereas in Athens, actually, it's the judges who determine both the guilt and also the penalty. So that is a big distinction. That distinction between judges and jurors doesn't exist in the Athenian legal system. Um, 
several, uh, at least one episode, if not several episodes, Edward could be dedicated to just the process of court in classical Athens. Um, excellent. It was an excellent uh, answer. Um, something you uh, mentioned in, in that, um, several things stood out, but something um, uh, really stood out for me was the parties, both parties after a verdict, and correct me if I'm saying this inaccurately in any way, but both parties um, after a verdict is handed down, the, the yes or no, and be guilty or not, um, mm -hmm. recommending what the actual penalty uh, should mm -hmm. should be. And uh, perhaps, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a lawyer, but perhaps uh, that happens to some degree uh, in certain situations in certain certain countries where uh, the different parties can make uh, uh, recommendations to a judge, per, per, perhaps. Um, but that to me sounds I, I'm not as familiar with that process. So is, is that accurate? So literally after a, a guilty or not guilty verdict, both both parties, so the one party that's guilty would then make a recommendation on what their own penalty should be? Yeah, yeah. But obviously, it was going to be less harsh than what the prosecutor would. And this we know this <laughs> is the case of Socrates and in other cases, too. That would uh, be very harsh. The defendant is, you know, you kind of a, a, a... It's a calculation here. Obviously, the, uh, the prosecutor uh, has got to figure... If he thinks it's a serious crime, he's going to a harsh penalty. But on the other hand, he may think, well, the judges may not, I may think it's a terrible crime, but the judges may not share my opinion, so maybe I'll have to go a little lower. And the problem is also with Socrates is that the other question is, is the defendant is also going to make a calculation. Um, obviously, because he's been convicted, he's got to act a little humble. And therefore, he's got to admit that, okay, yes, I, you guys are right. I did do something wrong, I should be punished. And he doesn't want to go too low, because if he goes too low, the um, this will offend the judges, and the judges will tend to go for the prosecutor. So <clears throat> there's there tends to be a, there's a, obviously a kind of calculation going on here. We don't have any accounts of this, but one can kind of see how the system worked. And we Socrates miscalculated. Either Socrates, well, <laughs> there's several things. I mean, Socrates may have felt that um, he actually turns out and he simply says, well, I think uh, I shouldn't be punished at all. In fact, I think I should get the highest award uh, that any Athenian citizen could have. And obviously his friends are kind of tugging at his elbow and say, you can't say that, you can't say that. And Socrates says, okay, well, this friend of mine over here says that he's willing to pay this certain amount of money for, for this and would you take that? And obviously you see the judges were really furious with this. They're expecting the guy to act a little humble and to admit his guilt and act contrite, and he is quite the opposite, which may explain why he did get that very harsh penalty. The process that you described around uh, at court, do scholars believe that that process started in Athens? Uh, that's a good question. We do have a little bit of evidence for uh, large courts with many judges in other cities, but not very much. We do know that for Sparta, for a lot of regular cases between individuals, like we call them private cases, it seems that this board of effers, and these are people who are uh, elected, uh, five of them elected every year, those are the ones, they handle those cases. For serious cases, the Spartans appear to have tried them before the Council of Elders, 
And the Council of Elders was 28 elders elected plus the two kings. And those cases, which also interesting, court case in Athens is one day. That's it. You start in the morning and you end in the afternoon. And that's for a, that's for a, uh, a public case. For the private cases, you might have three in a day. But main thing is everybody goes home at the end of the day. That's it. And the reason is, is they don't want people, they don't want cases going on for a few days because that means people could get bribed when they go home. In Sparta, on the other hand, they have a, uh, those cases will go on for, could go on for several days. And uh, actually Socrates talks about this. He thinks it's very unfair because he said, I have to defend myself and I've only got a limited amount of time. Whereas in Sparta, you know, you can go on for several days. So there is a distinction there. And those are the two systems we have the most about. There's also the Cretan law code. We only have, we don't have the public cases for them, but for the, we do have the private cases and the private cases, they do seem to use a single judge. They do seem to use just a single judge, but they're a society which is seen in certain regards as less democratic. So there is some sort of variation between the two. Okay. Uh, so, oh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Edward. One other thing is Athenian judges are paid. By the end of the fifth century, they're getting three opals a day. Three opals is about one half or one quarter of a workman's wage for a day. So they are paid. Okay. Um, some closing uh, qu questions. Um, so through the classical period and into the Hellenistic period, is there any evidence that uh, Athenian law influenced other city-states in those in those periods we don't know there's certain there's a limited amount of evidence um there may have been some uh minor uh cases um on the other hand each city-state had a long and its own long tradition we know the names of several lawgivers going back to the archaic period who obviously laid down the foundation of laws uh, on the one hand I, I i that's in terms of the individual uh Laws influencing other, other we don't other city states. We don't have much evidence. Um, on the other hand, uh, the ideal of the rule of law and the basic ideals of the rule of law would be equality between before the law, one accountability of all officials, three uh, knowing the charges before you come to court, four uh, cases being tried according to consistent rules. In other words, uh, uh, according to the laws. Uh, and also the laws being accessible and known to everybody. Those five basic principles go back to Athens. They're shared by the Greeks in general. Uh, this is, uh, this, and this is part of their cultural heritage. Uh, that's, those principles are widespread, and they seem to be widespread very early on. Also the idea that the law should be stable, they shouldn't be changing all the time, that is also seems to be a constant feature of all uh, legal systems. These ideals then have a big influence on the work of Plato, especially in the laws, where he has modifications, but he, ex he accepts the basic principles. And of course, Aristotle in the politics. Aristotle judges regimes, democratic regimes, moderate regimes, and uh, oligarchic regimes in terms of whether they uphold the rule of law or not. So there's a huge influence of these ideas, maybe not specific statutes, but these ideas of the rule of law are very much there in Plato and Aristotle. That then gets taken over uh, in Rome. Um, their, the relationship between Roman law and Greek law is, that would be not just one lecture, but several lectures. But the ideal of the rule of law is certainly there. It's taken over by Cicero. It's taken over by other people. And then it's handed down uh, by Cicero into the thinkers of the Renaissance 
Um, and for instance, uh, and it's also found to a certain extent in Livy. So therefore, then it, it gets handed down to uh, thinkers like Machiavelli, not Machiavelli of the Prince, but Machiavelli, Machiavelli of in his other works on uh, the, um, uh, the discourses on Livy, uh, and in other uh, Renaissance thought, and then it spreads, of course, to the rest of Europe from there. Okay, my last question was, does it live on today in, in any way? And it, it, it sounds like uh, you, you handled that last question for me. Oh, you, did you think I answered it? Well, I, well let's, ask, say- let's ask it then, because there's, I guess, there's the directly and indirectly. So let's, let's, give, it, let's give it the justice, uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Let's give the question the justice it, uh, it, it, it deserves. Okay, does it live on today in any way? Well, I think the ideal of the rule of law uh, makes a great deal of advances, and it's very well articulated by the Greeks. And I think in that sense that it's been handed into the European traditions and European traditions which have been then uh, worked their way into uh, other uh, uh, traditions. Um, for instance, uh, the Japanese took their uh, laws um, from the, uh, in the, I believe, in the late 19th century, actually from the, from the Germans. But I think, you know, indirectly in terms of leaving a legacy, uh, and we've certainly heard, um, for instance, uh, dealing with the last president, a lot of people have been talking about the importance of the rule of law and those principles. Uh, they may not be quoting Plato, they may not be quoting Aristotle, they may not be quoting Demosthenes, but what they're talking about, especially the accountability, uh, those principles were recognized by the Greeks and they were then handed down to subsequent generations. Edward, it's been great chatting with you today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Harris wrote, he's co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Ancient Greek Law, and he's author of The Rule of Law in Action in Democratic Athens. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Edward and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.